welcome to Mintro, an event organized by Vortlan and Ola Festagene, Sharon Kankan. So nice to have you here. Um, and so you're uh, one of the first, uh, you're leader of the first all-female mosque in Denmark, in Copenhagen, and you're also the writer of uh, the future of Islam. Uh, women are the future of Islam. And uh, President Emmanuel Macron of France has said that your uh, Islamic feminism is a progressive middle way that can build a bridge between Western secular society and conservative Muslims. So, Sharon, first I wanted to ask you, do you agree? Do you think that like, Islamic feminism can build a bridge between secular society and Islam? Uh, first of all, thank you for the invitation. I'm very honored and happy to be here on this special day. Can you hear me clearly? Thank you. And uh, yes, I do believe it's possible to combine Islam and feminism. And I do believe that Islamic feminism has something to contribute with when it comes to integrating Islam in European countries. My first meeting with Islamic feminism was through the spiritual Sufi literature in Islam. My father, who is a political refugee, he introduced me to Islamic feminism, not only through his own activism, but also through um, Sufi literature. So it's actually my way towards uh, my meeting with Islamic feminism was my meeting with the Islamic spiritual literature. So what, can you say anything, what does Islamic feminism mean? What distinguishes it from feminism in general? Of course, we cannot speak about Islamic feminism as one thing because it is being defined and practiced very differently by people. But one of my inspirational sources is Rabi al-Adawiyya. She's a Sufi saint. She died in 801 and she said... Um, it's one of my favorite, one of my favorite poems by her. She said, uh, "God, if I worship you because I long for paradise, close the gates of paradise in front of me. And God, if I, if I worship you because I fear hellfire, let me burn in hellfire. But God, Allah, if I worship you because I long for your mercy and your love, may your love and mercy be with me." And then she said, I carry a lamp with fire in one hand and a bottle with water in my other hand. And with these two things, I shall set fire to heaven and turn off hellfire so that the travelers towards God can see the true light. So what is it that she does? She takes the ultimate pair of opposition, heaven and hell, and then she deconstructs it. And the point is not that that there are not pairs of opposition, but the point is not to let all these man-made manipulated dichotomies separate us as human beings. So I use her, Rabia from the 8th century, I use her who died in 801. She inspires me in the way that in everything that I do, I try to deconstruct these manipulated dichotomies between East and West Christians and Muslims, Muslims or Jews, uh, men and women. Yeah. Yes. 
and that's the feminist part of it. Yes, I'm also inspired by Ibn Arabi. He was one of the founders, one of the founding fathers of Sufism also. He lived from 1165 until 1240. And he said, the perfect man is a woman. Mm. My father always used to quote him. So he was reinterpreting uh, the concept of gender. And later on, I started to study contemporary Islamic feminist literature. Amina Wadud, who wrote the book called Quran and Woman. Uh, Shahin Sadar Ali, who's giving a rereading of the Quran with a focus on gender equality and who is underlying the fact that only six out of more than 6,000 verses in the Quran can be interpreted as discriminatory against women, but they can also be reread differently. Mm -hmm. And this is what we do in the Maryam Mosque. We try to give a rereading of the Quran with a focus on gender equality. And this is Islamic feminism to me. So you, your work at the Maryam Mosque, which was founded in 2016, um, and uh, that's a quite controversial project, uh, both from like Danish political uh, figures on the right, but also among Muslims. And you once said that some, for some people, progressive Islam is more difficult to cope with than conservative Islam because it can help to rewrite a narrative of Islam in the West. What do you yes. mean by that? I actually, I remember the quotation. I said mm -hmm. that progressive Muslims are a greater threat than Islamists are mm -hmm. because we're actually able to change the narrative. And it's because Islamism is seen as the new threat in Europe. And I always try to nuance the debate on Islamism because even you cannot speak about Islamism as one thing. There are reform Islamists, there are radical Islamists, and there are jihadists who use violence as a method. So just by making that distinction, it becomes clear that not, not all Islamists are potential terrorists. But having said that, I do believe that progressive Muslims sometimes are seen as a bigger threat because when it comes to Islamophobes, some of them, they want to hold on to the narrative that Islam is a warrior's um, female suppressive religion. And then when they can see that women are taking the lead, giving the sermon, leading the prayer, disseminating new narratives on Islam in Europe, rereading the Quran, uh, with a focus on gender equality, it becomes very difficult for Islamophobes to hold on to the, f to the narrative that Islam is a female suppressive religion. Mm -hmm. um, yes. But how do you cope with that criticism, both from Danish politicians, but also from other Muslims? How do you cope with that? Um, in the Maria Mosque, we focus on the activism. We actually, we do not focus on the opposition. Always, when I give interviews, not only in Denmark, but also uh, internationally, journalists are very focused on the opposition. And I always, I, I mean, I always tell them about the support the fact that the Grand Imam from Indonesia came all the way to the Maria Mosque in Copenhagen and he blessed the mosque and he made a written document stating that female Imams is a blessing and a necessity within Islam. And he's representing 200,000 Muslims every Friday at his Friday prayer. I talk about the story of the Sheikh Fadlallah who came from South Africa and blessed the mosque. So there are so many stories of support 
And if I keep sharing these stories of support, it becomes more legitimate for Muslims to support the Maryam Mosque and our activism. But of course, when you start a mosque with female imams, you are met with opposition. It's, it's uh, inevitable. Mm -hmm. Because when you change status quo, when you, change, uh, when you challenge the patriarchate, you, you challenge the, um, uh, the power of balance, and pe some people will get upset, but we are prepared for that. And since like, you've run the mosque for three years now, uh, has it de developed in any way? Has it changed? Do you think that, that your work and that you exist in some way changes the culture and the narrative around Islam? Yes, I think that um, we have changed something. Uh, and I am not, of course, I'm not alone. We are a group of activists and we are becoming more and more every day. So. We have a lot of supporters, and I wouldn't be able to do this on my own. In the Maria Mosque, we have, we have three main battles, if you can put it that way. It's women's right to act as female imams, and we already implemented that. Today we have three female imams in the mosque who on shift, they lead the prayer, they call to prayer, and they give the khutbah, the sermon. Um, so this is a development. Then we have the, uh, the fight for women's right to choose their love partner. And I think that's maybe one of the most important battles that we are fighting. Because today in Denmark, in Norway, in many countries, Muslim women do not have the basic right to marry outside Islam. I myself, I have four children. I have two girls and two boys. And my boys are 10 and 11 and my girls are 8 and 15 years old. So what are the chances that my two girls will grow up one day and fall in love with a non-Muslim? It's huge because we live in Denmark, we live in Europe. But the father of my children, he, he would always argue and he still argues that this is never going to happen because he says, I have raised my children so well, so they will not even think about falling in love with a non-Muslim. They will not even dream about it. And he's actually not alone with his opinion. You will find the same opinion among some religious Christians, some religious Jews, and some religious Muslims. It's not a rare opinion. It's not a, an opinion you find among some Muslims alone. The, the rabbi in Denmark, I just had a talk with him lately, and he said exactly the same thing. He said, Jewish people, they do not fall in love with non-Jewish people because they know it's not a possibility. And I told him, are you sure? And he said, yes, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's, it's not happening. And of course it's happening. And it's also happening among Muslims. So in the Maria Mosque, we have made it possible for Muslim women to marry outside Islam. And until today, we have conducted more than 45 oh, Islamic marriages. And the majority are between practicing Muslim, faithful women and non-Muslims. It could be a practicing Jew or a practicing Christian. But are you the only mosque in Denmark that conducts inter-religious marriages? Yes, we are the only mosque in Denmark. Yeah. And I do believe that we are the only mosque in Scandinavia. In Scandinavia, wow. And in Europe, there are very few mosques who uh, perform interfaith marriages. Mm -hmm. In Tunisia, they changed the law recently, some years ago, 
So in Tunisia, it's possible for a Muslim woman to marry outside mm -hmm. Islam. But why is this a feminist issue to you? Is it because like Muslim men can marry outside Islam? Do they have that opportunity? They do. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. it's, it's an important issue because everything starts in the family. And if we do not have the basic right as people to choose our love partner, then everything else is insignificant. Mm. Everything starts in the family, and everything starts with that important choice, the choice to choose your love partner or the partner for your life. Uh, in the Quran, it is stated clearly that a Muslim man can marry a Jew or a Christian or people from the book, Jews or Christians. Uh, but it is not stated clearly that a Muslim woman can marry a Jew or a Christian, and it is not stated that she can't. Okay, yeah. So we use that as our legitimacy, mm -hmm. that it is stated that a man can marry outside Islam, and what goes for the man goes for the woman, because in Islam we believe that God has created a world of multiplicity, and we believe that God has created gender equality. So gender equality um, is um, an essential part of the Quran. It's, it's the fundament. Mm -hmm. The first person who called to prayer in Islam was a black slave. His name was Bilal. And it was, it was in 600 in Medina. So imagine that, a black slave calling to prayer, gathering all the, the communities to pray. So Islam is is essentially a message that tries to break down all the hierarchies between men and women, black and white, um, etc. Rich and poor. Divorce is another issue that you deal with as an imam in the Marian Mosque. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Um, we have uh, constructed a new Islamic marriage contract in the Marian Mosque. It's eight pages long. And it is stated clearly that polygamy is forbidden. If mental or physical violence occur, the marriage is annulled. And women have the right to divorce. And if, and then most importantly, we made a fusion between Danish legislation and Islamic guidance. So if you are divorced according to Danish law, you are immediately divorced Islamically. Mm -hmm. So that there is not uh, this dilemma. Today, Many Muslims, they marry according to Danish law, legally. And of course, we know that it's only European law that counts in Europe. So the, the Islamic marriage or the Islamic divorce, they do not count legally. They have absolutely no legal uh, authenticity. But if you are a practicing Muslim or a Muslim, it counts psychologically, spiritually, uh, mentally, um, religiously. So we... We are faced with women today who are trapped in psychological abusive marriages or physical abusive marriages that they cannot escape because the husband refuses to give them an Islamic divorce. So they can easily divorce according to Danish law, but not Islamically. And sometimes they're not even married according to Danish law. No. And the man has, it, it's easy for the man to get a divorce, but not for the woman. Yes, right? the man can easily uh, get the Islamic divorce. And he's today in many mosque communities in Denmark, he's the only one who can give the Islamic divorce. So this is, of course, something that we want to change. And we do believe it's possible to standardize this contract. In Denmark, I know only of two Muslim communities that gives women the right to divorce in the contract. 
So imagine if we could standardize this contract all over the world, making a fusion between European legislation and Islamic guidance, or just give women the right to divorce in the contract, then we wouldn't have these problems as we see today. But let's rewind a little. Uh, your background, can you tell us a little bit about that? You had a dad that came from Syria and was a Muslim. He was a political refugee, as you said. But your mother was Christian and came from Finland. So that's yes. quite an unlikely match. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, my mother, she comes from Finland, from a small village called Mahlu, uh, Sariarvi. You cannot find it on any map. <laughs> It's... Um, She comes, she has eight sisters and brothers, and when she was 20 years old, she came to Denmark with her older sister because they were in need of nurses, and she just became a nurse, and she couldn't find, find work in Finland. And my father, he's a political refugee. He comes from Damascus. He has six brothers and sisters. He came from a very poor family. My grandfather, Naim, he used to call to prayer from the Omeyyad Mosque. It's one of the most beautiful mosques in, in Syria, in the Middle East, I would say. So he comes from the city Damascus, and he was a political activist uh, fighting against the Hafez al-Assad regime. And he was imprisoned, tortured, and came to Denmark as a political refugee. He was supposed to go to Sweden because his other activist friends were active there. But then he met my mother the first week he came to Copenhagen. And we hear the story every year when they have their anniversary. They have been married for many years. They still love each other. So I'm very lucky, or we are lucky, me and my sister. And my father, he tells us that when he saw my mother in the street, he saw her twice the same day. So he's, he thought it was a sign from God. And he actually proposed to her the second time he saw her the first day he's wow. met her. <laughs> and uh, of course she said, no, thank you. But they married uh, a few months later and they're still married today. So I was brought up with a Christian mother, Muslim father. My father prays five times a day. My mother, she's a practicing Christian. We go to the church with my mother. Uh, my mother is fasting with us. We celebrate Christmas and eat and both the Islamic and the Christian uh, rituals. So I think I was really lucky because I do believe that if the parents succeed in uniting different cultures and different religions, I do believe that the children will always be a step behind or in front, not behind, in front. Because you get used to navigate mentally between different cultures and religions, and that's really healthy. But was that ever complicated? It sounds a bit complicated for, for the children and for, the, for your parents. I, I think that a religion never gave uh, problems. It was more culture that sometimes could give uh, problems, but not religion. But I think that we, they managed very well to, to survive. But were you a religious child? Um, I was always a spiritual child. Uh, but I, when I was a child, I didn't know which religion to choose between, because both my parents, they made an agreement that we should have the choice of choosing our own religion. I was born a Muslim. I wasn't baptized. That was a compromise my mother made. But my father made the compromise that when we grew older, we should have access to both Christianity and Islam. So my mother would teach us about Christianity and my father would teach us about Islam and then we would have the right to choose our religion. 
and then I chose to become a practicing Muslim when I was around 19 years old. And, and so it was a choice I made myself. But your sister, you have a sister. Yes. Did she choose Christianity or Islam? Uh, she's a cultural Muslim. Yeah. She's mm -hmm. not practicing, but she's a Muslim. But as a child, like growing up with these two religions, what did you perceive to be the main difference between Christianity and Islam as you remember it now? Actually, I do believe that we share the same values. Uh, Christian, Muslims, Jews, uh, whatever religion, we share the basic same values. Um, it's humility, honesty, uh, forgiveness, mercy, um, human rights. All these values are not Christian values. These values are universal values shared by Muslims as well. So it's not the values that separate us. We also have a very, I have a very strong value, which is, uh, I don't know the English word, felskate community. And I know that's also a value among Christians. So it's, it's not a Muslim value, as some Muslims would tend to say, that in Islam, we are a community and Christians are individualists. Mm -hmm. You cannot say that. That's, of course, not right. But, of course, the theology is different. We do believe that uh, Jesus is uh, a prophet, a beloved prophet. He's our love prophet. And Jesus' name is mentioned several times in the Quran. Peace be upon him. Uh, we do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, we do not believe in the Trinity in um, our Um So there are some theological differences, of course, between the religions. Yeah. And I do believe that the reason why I chose to become a practicing Muslim is because I was introduced to Sufism, mm -hmm. which is the spiritual path in Islam. And I think that's the reason why I chose to be a Muslim. We should talk about Sufism later, but you mentioned uh, Arvizin, which you said. In, oh, sorry? Uh, Arvizin, so Sen, original Sen. Yes. And that was a difficult co concept for you as a teenager, you've said that that's... Yeah, I, I don't believe in the original Sen. I believe that we're all born free and good. And uh, I remember that my mother introduced me to uh, the Aramaic... Do you know that? I don't and, think so, no. Okay, it's a... She believes that this prayer is... It's, it's like Trosbekendelsen. Yes. Yes, the Christian, but it's, it's a different kind. Okay. It says, Himmelske ophav, du som er over alt, hellig vær dit navn. Befri os fra de bånd, vi binder os selv og hinanden med. Uh, det vil sige, uh, the evil is not from outside, it's from, it's from inside. inside. Yes. Yes, and the that's very close him. to Islam. Mm -hmm. So I do believe there are, there are some definitions or approaches to Christianity that are very similar to Islam. But why was the concept, like when we're born free, what do you mean by that? And because sin is also a concept in Islam, right? Uh, yeah, but not in the same way. We do believe that uh, jihad... It means to anstrengelse. Mm -hmm. uh, what's that in English? To, to anstrengelse, it's the same yeah. word in Norwegian. Anstrengelse. Yes. So the big jihad in Islam is to try to balance your own ego, uh, jealousy, enviness, uh, hatred. So these, this is the, these are the sins that we should try to balance. Mm -hmm. But 
it's more complicated in Christianity, do you think? that It's not what? It's more complicated in Christianity, the concept of sin. Why? why? It's just interesting to me. Yeah, that I idea. don't know if it's more complicated, but I do believe that the Islamic theology is closer to my heart. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, when you became a Muslim as a teenager, how did that change you as a person? Was it like a conversion, like a, a deep religious experience that you felt? Can you tell us about that? It was, uh, it was not something that happened overnight. I, I think that my inspiration came firstly and primarily through my father, through his activism, through his, by mirroring, mirroring myself and him, how he treats my mother, uh, how he's never able to eat before everybody's eating, how he's uh, self-sacrificing, thinking about others before himself. So the way he introduced Islam to me really affected me. And then later on, when I was introduced to the Sufi literature and started to study Ibn Arabi, on a deeper level, I really felt the connection. And so it's, it's, it was a journey that I was on. And then I also met people. And I think that the people we meet in our lives is also very significant. I, I was lucky to meet people who were a part of a Sufi circle, and they took me in. And I was really inspired by that. I also did my thesis on Sufism and Islamic activism in Syria. I stayed there for one and a half year. And I was a part of a, a Sufi circle, a community, Naqshbandiya, uh, are they called? And I did my thesis on their activism. Do you just have to tell us, or like explain in like short terms, Sufism, what is that? What distinguishes Sufism? It's, um, it's the religion of the heart. Mm -hmm. it's, about, it's about purifying your heart. Uh, we have a very f like famous story where a man, he comes to the Prophet and he asks him, what is Islam, what is Iman, Iman is faith, and what is Ihsan? So he asks him these three questions. And the Prophet, he says that Islam is um, the five pillars. He mentioned the five pillars in Islam, that you have to pray, you have to fast, you have to serve other people. It's the declaration of faith, and it's the pilgrimage. And then he, he and so Islam is like, the, is, it's like the Sharia. And I don't know if you, have you heard about the word Sharia? In, in, West, in, in a Western uh, tradition, it's often associated with something bad. But from a Sufi perspective and from an Islamic perspective, it's just the way, you know, it's the way we practice our religion. And praying five times a day, it's our Sharia. So you cannot detach yourself from Sharia because it's a part of being a Muslim. It's a spiritual struggle that you have with yourself, right? Yes, yeah. and when we pray five times a day, we put our forehead on the ground and we try to be close to God. We wash everything away from this world. It's, it's, it, we do that five times a day. We try to forget about our own private projects, our egos. And then when we stand up and we say, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu, we greet the angels and our sisters and brothers who is standing close to our shoulder. And it's not only our Muslim sisters and brothers. From a Sufi spiritual point of view, it's your Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, any 
sister and brother who is close to you. It's also the stranger, the one who is far away from you. So, and in the Quran, it is stated that God says, I have created a world of multiplicity because I want you to want multiplicity. I have created you nation, men and women, and made you into nation and tribes so that you may know each other. So the prayer is a movement, a mental movement and a physical movement between Tawheed by being close to God and multiplicity. So the point is that you cannot claim to love God if you do not love your Christian sister or Jewish brother. So it's a, it's a more individualist in a way and a more mystical kind it's of more mystical. It's more mystical. Sufism is, uh, yeah, you could say it's mystical, mm -hmm. but it's also very practical. Mm -hmm. It's also yeah. about... Um, it's about servanthood. Mm -hmm. It's about and how... Activism and and activism. Yeah. Sufism has spread through Sufi orders and it's being defined through love poetry, through activism, through daily practices, through dhikr, which is about remembering God by purifying your heart. So it's being defined, but I would always, if I should explain it in one sentence, it's uh, the religion of the heart. Mm -hmm. yeah. Ibn Arabi, he said that if we people only seek to understand God or the Quran through our, with our mind, we will meet a lot of paradoxes. So we also have to develop the methodology of the heart and combine it with the mind. Mm -hmm. So, but just to finish that story, so there's the Sharia and the jurists, Islamic jurists are, they are operating with Sharia. Then we have the ulama, they are occupied with the, with faith, the faith articles. And then you have the Sufis, and they are occupied with the spiritual teaching, mm -hmm. the deeper essence. Why do we do the things we do? What's the inner, deeper essence behind praying every day? And to me, that's understanding that the way to God is through your fellow human being. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this is what the prayer remind, remind us of. Mm -hmm. So you're like when you converted, you were about 19 and you discovered Sufism and you started in Syria. But at the same time, you, you've said that you never felt at home in any mosque that you visited. Uh, that must be that must have been quite lonely. Uh, I way. actually felt at home in many of the mosques I have visited in the Middle East. But then I come as a visitor and people, they're very kind and invite me inside and I pray with them. But actually in Denmark, I never felt at home in any of the existing mosque communities. I always felt like a stranger and I always felt this heavy patriarchate. And even when I was in Syria and I felt very at home in that mosque, the Abu Nur mosque, I remember I was sitting on the balcony with all the women great women, great female scholars. And then we were looking down at the Grand Mufti of Syria, who was the Imam or the Grand Mufti in, in the mosque, and he was giving his sermon, and we could see him through the glass. And I remember I was very young, and I was thinking that one day, I'm going to build a mosque with female Imams. So I had my inspiration in the East, and, and not in the West. Okay, I was inspired yeah. in the East. And not in the West. But why do you think you didn't feel at home in Denmark? What, why are the mosques in Denmark different than the mosques in the East? 
uh, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's me who has a problem because I know that there are so many great mosque communities in Denmark. It's not because they are not great, and there are a lot of women who feel at home in these mosques. But I think it's because I, I, it's it's not a it's not like a. a a bright idea I had four years ago to start a mosque with female imams. It's something that came many years ago. Yes, a longing that you have. Yeah, a longing a long to, yeah. to to listen to the voice of a woman calling to prayer. When I hear the call to prayer, this is the moment where I know that I'm a Muslim mm -hmm. because I feel it. And I remember when I was living in the Middle East, I, I lived in Cairo and in, in Damascus, When you wake up early mornings for the Salat al-Fajr, the morning prayer, and you can hear all the echoes with the human voice calling to prayer. So I always imagine how would it feel like and be if a woman called to prayer. But mostly it's, it's about giving women the same possibilities as men. We have so many great female scholars all around the world, and yet they should have access to the chair. And the one who gives the sermon Is it's not a matter of gender; it's a matter of knowledge. Mm. So, uh, what, what what would you say is the main difference with the Maryam Mosque and other mosques, apart from the fact that it's run by women? Do you do it in a different way than other mosques? Um, I think we do. I think that all mosques are unique in their own way. But we have built up the Maryam Mosque from scratch, so it has been a trial error process. Mm. So I think that. We we have everything in everything that we do. It's defined by a more spiritual approach. And when it comes to an Islamic marriage or vicar ceremony or the the way we call to prayer, the female voice is of course different from the male voice. So I think that it is very different. And the women who come to the mosque. They are often very touched by the fact that when they hear, listen to a female voice calling to prayer, they get very touched. And, and some of the women, they say that we haven't prayed for many years, but now we feel like praying again because we feel at home. Mm -hmm. So I think that the, the magical thing, I think that magical things can happen in a community And to me, it's very important to create that magic place where women enter and they feel at home and they can be themselves. Mm -hmm. And what kind of responses do you get from, from women in general and, and men as well? Uh, actually, uh, as I said, we have um, women who they haven't prayed for many years. Some of them, they grew up in very conservative communities. And then they had like a reaction against religion. And now they want to pray again because they feel embraced and free and they can relate to an interpretation of the Quran or rereading, which, is, which has a, this focus on gender equality. Then we have also have a lot of converts who feel that the, the mosque is balancing um, the background they come from and what they have found in Islam. And then we have, we are mostly attracting a new generation of Muslims, I do believe. Yeah. But also men. We ha our vice president, he's a man. His name is Sa'ar al-Jashi. He has a PhD in Islamic philosophy. He just published a book about Islamic philosophy, which is now on the curriculum at the Danish Faculty of Philosophy at the university, which is really 
amazing because I think that in order to change the grow, to challenge the growing Islamophobia, we have to challenge the knowledge production or change the knowledge production or place ourselves on the knowledge production in order to produce new stories about Islam mm -hmm. in Europe. So we, the, one of the founding members of the Maryam Mosque was Hisham. Uh, Hisham, he, he died recently, he was 31 years old. He died from a, a disease called cystic fibrosis. So we lost him, but he's still alive through his activism because he was the first man who stood behind all the women and supported the mosque. And yeah, he was one of the founding figures. And we just had a, a brother who came just before vacation. Um, and he said that he wanted to be a male imam in the mosque. Mm -hmm. And he's really, he, he was educated from Al-Azhar and he's good in reciting. So we thought about recruiting also a male imam for the future. Okay, yeah. Yes. But uh, just to finish, yeah, just because of course men is important in the battle against the patriarchate and against uh, female suppressive uh, readings. So it's so important to stand together, men and women. But uh, as I see it, a part of your project is to reread and reinterpret uh, the Islamic tradition. And while you do that, you focus, among other things, on the role of women and the role women have played in the Islamic tradition. But um, many others do not see Islam that way. Uh, and many others have different readings of that tradition. How do you um, feel about that? Like you're, in a way, you're one of one of a few people who interpret it in that way in the public day-to-day -day debate, right? Actually, I'm not one of you. We have a, a very long and great tradition of modernist scholars, uh, and it's not modernist opposed to traditional. <laughs> um, no. But um, we have a great tradition of scholars who reread the Quran with a focus on gender equality. It's not a new phenomenon. As I said, even in the Sufi literature, mm -hmm. even Rabia, who died in 801, she gave a rereading of the Quran with a focus on gender equality. Ibn Arabi did it. So it's not, an, it's not something new. It's not a reformation. We are not, we are not reformating. We are actually going back to the roots and we are part of a, a, a greater tradition. Mm -hmm. In the very first house mosque in the Islamic tradition, uh, that was the house mosque of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in Medina. The Prophet, he established the first house mosque where people came to pray. And in that house mosque, two women led the prayer as imams for other women after the Prophet died in 632. That was Aisha and Umm Salama. And while the Prophet Muhammad was alive, he appointed Umm Waraka, it was a woman who was known for her knowledge about Islam and she was great in her recitation of the Quran. Mm -hmm. So he appointed her to lead the prayer for her household in her own house mosque. At that time, we didn't have house mosque, official mosques as we know them today. There were different house mosques. So at least three women were acting as female imams in, year, in 600 in Medina. Mm -hmm. And the Prophet appointed a woman as the Imam. 
So what happened? How come that we have normalized all these patriarchal structures around the world? Of course, there are many different factors. One of them is the fact that when, the, when Omar came to power, he was the second caliph um, af after Abu Bakr. When Omar came to power, he denied women the right to serve as female imams. When was that? Which It was in 634. Okay, yeah. He was the second caliph. So he said, it's not obligatory for you. You don't have to pray in the mosque. You can pray in your houses because that was in the process where the house mosque became more official. So more people came to the more official mosques. And in that process, women were excluded. Mm -hmm. So when Muslims today in 2019 deny women the basic right to enter the chair, to give the khutbah, the sermon, to lead the prayer, to call to prayer, it's, it's actually, uh, they are actually following in the footsteps of the Prophet. And when people deny women this right, they are following in the footsteps of the second Caliph Omar. Mm -hmm. And if you want to read more, uh, there is a very, um, there is a, uh, an author, his name is Ibn Saad, He has written a biographical lexicon called Kitab al-Tabakat al-Kabir in Arabic. It consists of eight volumes. And the seven volumes are only about the men who followed the Prophet in Medina, but the eight volume is only about the women. And in this eight volume, you will find all these very famous hadith stories about women acting as teachers, warriors, and as imams. So do you think that more people and more mosques will follow in your footsteps in a way, or not in your footsteps, but there will be more mosques that have female I imams? I think that it's a spreading phenomenon. Do you when think we, so? Yes. When we started the Maryam Mosque in 2016, I, had, I didn't have any knowledge about the existing mosque around the world with female imams. I realized that there, there are female imams in China since the 1820. They have several women's mosques in China. In U.S., of course, I knew about the mosque in, in Canada. Amina Wadud, the great female Muslim scholar, she uh, led the prayer in 2005 in New York. Mm -hmm. And then there are Halima Krausen, Rabia Müller in Germany. Uh, in Berlin, there's also a new mosque uh, in Switzerland. And now also in Germany in UK, mm -hmm. so it's a spreading phenomenon in Somalia, in South Africa. And do you think it will gain more accept from other Muslim, like Islamic schools as well? Uh, three out of four Islamic schools, mm -hmm. law schools, uh, Sunni mm -hmm. law schools, they allow uh, women leading the prayer for other women. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they allow this because of the hadith stories about the Prophet appointing a woman to lead the prayer and the hadith, hadith are the written stories about what we think the prophet said and did. Mm -hmm. And they are written down 200 years after the death of the prophet. Mm -hmm. So because of these stories um, telling us about Aisha who led the prayer, Um Salaman, Um Waraka, uh, three out of four Islamic schools, they have to allow it. Mm -hmm. They don't think it's a great idea, but they accept it and allow it. I was just gonna, uh, one question, I read an interview with you that you said that uh, you were married or your now ex-husband, uh, he uh, 
really supported you in your role as an imam, but then it became difficult for him after a while. Can you tell us about what happened? Uh, yes, um, it was, uh, yeah, I think that to my ex-husband, we, we divorced uh, when I started the mosque or a couple, re shortly after. He actually, he was in great favor of a women's mosque and he supported the, the idea of a women's mosque and the idea of women leading the prayer and giving the khutbah as long as it was for other women and not mixed. But when he realized that I was going to be one of the female imams, I didn't know that myself because when we started the mosque, we wanted to recruit female imams and we did. We were six female imams the first year. And I never imagined myself, I thought that I would be the woman behind the mosque, but then I started slowly to do all the things that an imam does. I, um, I mean, I'm a sociologist of religion and philosophy, I studied Arabic, I am also a cognitive psychotherapist, and 80% of an imam's work is Islamic spiritual care. People contact you on a daily basis with all kinds of problems. So. I very quickly, I found myself talking to a lot of people, like on a daily basis. And Islamic spiritual, I also studied Islamic spiritual care, and it's a very specific way of talking to people. You're not allowed to counsel. It's the opposite of counseling. So I started to give Islamic spiritual care. I started to lead the prayer. Uh, perform Islamic marriages, divorces, etc. So slowly, I was doing all the things that an imam does. Yeah. So it, it's not, I didn't take the title and then I became an imam. Mm. I did the things and then I was given the title. Yeah. And very, in the beginning, the other women wouldn't take the title. Mm -hmm. It was really difficult to have anyone taking the title upon them. Because it was such a stigma, or because it was because it's not it's not a very uh, yeah it, it is being an imam in Denmark it's not a very uh, I mean you won't be able to have a job after that mm. so people <laughs> are always th always thinking about their future also yeah because we have a growing Islamophobia like you have in Norway and it, it's not a very prestigious title no so um, but I I didn't tell my father or my husband no. that I took the title. I just did it slowly. Mm -hmm. And then, because I knew that they would oppose it. I, I think it was because I knew it, so I didn't tell them. No. I always did that. I always do things, and then afterwards I, I take whatever comes. And I remember my father, he called me, and he got a message from a family member from Syria who said that I just saw Shireen on Syrian national TV, and they are reporting about the Maria Mosque and that she's an imam and it's impossible. She can't be an imam. And my father, he said, you have to denounce the title. Okay, yeah. Call yourself anything else. You cannot take upon you the imam title. No. And I asked him why. And my father, he's the greatest feminist. He, 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 I mean, so I knew that he was speaking out of concern. And I asked him, why can I not take the title? And I said, you accept many of the male imams taking the title when they lead the mosque and do all the things that I do. And he said, well, you have to wear the scarf all the time, not only when you pray, and you have to be able to recite the Quran by heart, mm -hmm. the whole Quran. And I asked him, do you think that all the imams recite the whole Quran by heart? 
Um, and he said, uh, no, but you have to wear the scarf at least. Okay. And then he actually didn't talk to me for a month. Wow. And then now he's very happy and proud. Um, mm -hmm. And my ex-husband, he gave me an ultimatum. He said mm -hmm. that you have, to, you have to think very carefully and wisely. And he said, I'm, I won't be able to um, continue. To be married to you. No. You. Yeah. He said that uh, to him, the most crucial thing was the interfaith marriages. Okay. He yeah. said that one thing, because he knew that I'm in favor of interfaith marriages. I'm a product of an interfaith marriage. <laughs> and what goes for the man goes for the woman. If, if God allows a Muslim man to marry a Christian, of course God allows a Muslim woman to marry uh, a, a Christian. Mm -hmm. So this is my belief, and my, uh, I, I do believe that it's deeply rooted in the Quran, this opinion. But he couldn't cope with that. No, he said that one thing is that you have this view, but you promoting it and make it, making this possible for people in the future, I, I, he couldn't uh, handle that. And was that, uh, like that ultimatum, that must be so incredibly hard to make a decision like that? Like, or was it hard? Of course, it, it was hard. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yes. But you chose to continue as an imam. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't go back. No. No. Mm. no. But your husband, he was he was in favor of the mosque, like, and you've said something along the lines that he was a progressive, but it was hard for him that his own wife was in front in the revolution, kind of. Yeah, I, I think that. Um, I think it's difficult. It's always difficult to be the one who is in front, and also because I'm I'm the one who's in front uh, visually. Now we try to change that. We have um, started an Islamic academy, so our aim is to educate a new generation of female imams. And the more we become, the more legitimate it it is, and the more women will dare to take that title upon them. So I think it's a matter of time. And yes, I think that many people, they want the revolution, they want the changes, but they don't want their wife or their daughter to stand in front. In the front of it. No. Yes. And because of the security threat as well that you face, both from... <laughs> From, uh, from lots of groups. I, 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 both my father and my ex-husband was very worried about the security issues, but I am not. Yeah. I, I, since I started the mosque with the other activists, we never had a single death threat from any Muslim mm. at all. And our little mosque went international. Mm. It went from Denmark to China to the Middle East. Um, so we had a lot of criticism and opposition and a lot of verbal abuse, but we never had a single death threat. No. So I had death threats from Islamophobes, but never from Muslims. No. We're almost out of time, but uh, one last question. Um, I just wanted to ask you, what, what are your hopes for the future of Islam in Europe and in Denmark and in Norway and in the world? It's a big question. <laughs> yeah, it's a big question. I will answer your um, question with two stories. Mm -hmm. Yes, because I do believe that it's the stories that we remember when we hear somebody speak. We, we remember the stories. 
but just shortly to answer the question, I do believe that um, educating a new generation of female imams, this is one of my visions. And like for the last two Friday prayers, I wasn't necessary. I, I, because we, we have a new generation, one, one woman was leading the prayer, the other one was giving the khutbah, and the third one was, was calling to prayer. So I was not, uh, I was overflowing. What is that in Norway? Overflödig. Yes. And I do believe that when you become overflödig, you are, it's a success. So I was really happy about it. But um, let me share two stories with you to answer the question about hope for the future. I remember when um, I was giving the, I was going to lead the first, I was going to um, lead the prayer for the first time in the Maria Mosque back in August 2016. Uh, together with Saliha, and I was preparing myself at home. I was putting on my galabia and my scarf, and my four children were watching me. And my youngest daughter, Halima, at that time, she was only five years old. She had a friend visiting our house, a non-Muslim Danish girl, and she whispered in my daughter's ears, what is any mom? And then my daughter, five years old, she just looked at her and she looked so proud and she said, don't you know, an imam is a woman who's doing great things. <laughs> so that really inspired me and it gave me a lot of hope because I thought that sometimes we people, we believe it's impossible to change status quo, we believe it's impossible to change the patriarchal structure because it has been normalized for decades and it, it's, it's so ma massive. But it is actually possible for a small group of women and men to change a patriarchal structure just by doing it. And so it really gave me a lot of hope. And the other story, it was um, my two boys, they love to play chess, also the girls, but they were playing chess. And do you know that the word chess in Danish, skakmat? Uh, Mm -hmm. It's the same in Norwegian? Shakmat. Yeah, skakmat. Yeah. Yeah. I, I asked my sons, do you know where the word skakmat descends from? And they said no. And I said, uh, skakmat, it descends from the Arabic, sheikhmat, or the Persian, shahmat. And the sheikh or the shah, it's the ruler, it's the king, it's the leader. And mat in Arabic or Persian, it means dead. So my daughter Aisha, she said, be aware Muslim brothers, the sheikh is dead, long live the female imams. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming.